professional communist uh, coal plunge guy. <laughs> the communist Wim Hof. <laughs> I like it. Is that the guy who goes on Jordan Peterson and tells you how to breathe? I'm not sure. Is that old, the old guy with the beard that always has his shirt off? That yeah, out in the I snow think that's and, him. <laughs> yeah. Are we recording right now? Yeah. Oh, we're recording. Well, let me tell you guys a quick story before we start. On the cold, sure. cold plunge question, right? I think this uh-huh. is really <laughs> essential. Um, we were working a job. This was four, five, six years ago, uh, rebuilding a boardwalk after Hurricane Sandy. So a pretty big union job. We had like you know, 10, 15 of us on it, boom, boom, hammering our way, cutting shit up, throwing it in. And every day, this small gnomish man, probably about 70 years old, would come walking down the beach and he'd be, and this was in the dead of winter, mind you, this, it, mm-hmm. we're talking from 40 degrees down to like 20 degrees Fahrenheit, really cold out. Every day he'd come walking by and he'd be wearing just a Speedo and he'd be wearing gloves. And we would look <laughs> at this guy like, you're crazy. And then he would go and he would jump in the ocean down at Brighton Beach. Damn. And finally one day we like. His name was Norman Finkel. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Norm was farther up the beach, like, I don't know, yelling at people about something. But uh, yeah, finally one day, because we used to always wave to him. Finally one day we asked him, we're like, sir, we have to ask you, like, what's up, you know, with the, with the Speedo and the gloves? And he like joked. He laughs and he says in like a thick Russian accent, he's like, my hands get cold. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great fucking guy, man. It's the kind of characters you love to see. He might he might have have beat you, Brett, as the communist cold plunge guy. We don't know. He he was Russian. And yeah, he has the Russian accent. He, he's wearing the speedo. I mean, he he got me for sure. But yeah. that's my life trajectory goal is to get closer and closer to what he is. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us really. We need no, no. What we all need collectively is to create the social and material conditions necessary that every person can become that man. By that I mean Thank Russian. You, yeah. I'll continue being the guy at the comedy who's like, ah, you guys go ahead. I'm fine. I I did it before. I know what it's like. You're like, I'm really good at it, but I don't feel like it right now. I've done it. What a shock of adrenaline, though, right? Oh, my God, yeah. And actually, it's, like, scientifically proven as well, like, that you have, like, elevated dopamine levels for hours afterwards. Um, And I really do. I get out and I, like, scream and, like, adrenaline-fueled exhilaration like it's it's an intense experience for sure hell yeah we need you need to provide some sort of like uh thing for patrons where you like live stream it <laughs> or something like that but only like the select few rev left radio the select few, yeah. well nice to talk to you again brett been a while yeah, you as well so we are thinking about starting off a little cold plunge into the past oh um and we wanted to <laughs> surprise you with your old folk punk theme song, but we actually couldn't find it, and we're worried that it's been memory hold. Yeah, it's either been memory oh, hold or it's like that Mandela effect thing where you remember something that never actually existed. Yeah, folk punk never yeah. actually existed. <laughs> we just remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I think that band that made that broke up, and it was a pretty messy breakup and controversial, and so I think, yeah, that song just might be off the internet. I'm not sure. I'm sure we have it somewhere. But, uh, can yeah, you please know. just send it to us? <laughs> We separate the artists from the art here at the <laughs> If you had your druthers, would you still be starting your show with that song? Because it was fucking based as hell. We loved it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Have you moved on both politically and aesthetically from your song is what we're asking you. <laughs> I think I, I think at least aesthetically. Actually, in fact, when I when I was doing that, I got a really funny email. 
um, from like a, a black comrade that's like, hey, I love this show. I'm I'm trying to show it to my my friends, but that fucking intro song <laughs> really turns a lot of people. Yeah. Off. So yeah. I was like, all right, all right. So you 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 got a little more neutral on shit now. That's probably smart. Well, punk right. does tend to make it a bit of a white space. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> Man, it's been. Um, me and Andy were just talking about this uh, as we sit in this chilly apartment. Uh, it's been probably three years, I think, since we've spoken to you in any capacity at all. I think we did one great crossover very early in our show and during your uh, blessed folk punk period. And then I think we tried to do, uh, I'd say, a, a project that was a bit of a mixed bag, which was we tried to read some communization literature and try to like get through it. But yeah. it, it was a little tough. And I think this was when we were still in the Majority Report studio, so at least three years ago. It's been a minute. Right. And we've Except both... Except that I, I had Andy on to talk about his book, but as far as a straight-up collab between the two shows, yeah, I don't think we've done it since then. Well, I, I guess the question is, you know, having passed through over the last several years... Do you still listen to us? <laughs> absolutely, of course. Oh, awesome. sub. I listen to you guys, too. Yeah, absolutely. It's a mutual yeah. appreciation society. I mean, what has happened in the last few years? We've had a um, globe-spanning pandemic... We've had uh, the death of uh, Bernie Sandersism for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Uh, we've had a uh, return to land warfare on the European continent. Uh, we've mm -hmm. had inflation and supply chain crises. We've had various upsurges and strike waves. We've had mass insurrections that have popped up and died out all over the globe in the last few years. So the question I guess we got to ask you is, what's new, man? How you doing? Well, you left out one huge event, which is the the world historical emergence of MAGA communism. Oh uh, yes, you know, that, yes. <laughs> oh, actually, in, on a serious We're living in the wake of that earthquake. On a serious note, and I think we should talk about that shit maybe behind a paywall. Well, we'll see how it goes. But yeah. I, I, I've, of course, forgot the George Floyd uprising too. Right? We saw a mass course, insurrectionary wave in the meantime. So. I did not forget. Andy didn't it's forget. Like the one thing I talk about every week on the show. Andy was wagging his <laughs> finger at me. Well, I was saying that. Never forget. Never forget. Never forget. So what's new, man? Not much. I mean, you know, in, in my personal life, I guess got like, you know, kids and shit. So that's constantly um, where my, my head is at all the time. Um, that's a but blessing. yeah, I mean, I don't know, just riding the wave and trying to keep contributing. Like, I, you know, like when the, when the show started, it's probably true for you as well. We're in a little bit of a moment where the left was, you know, kind of the, the, we had the tailwinds at our back under Trump. You know, there's a lot of movement, a lot of organization. And then it seems like the, the winds have shifted mm -hmm. um, towards reaction in the last couple of years in particular. Um, and I've kind of even seen that with like engagement, you know, across all the all the platforms. There seems to just be a little headwind now for the left. And these things go back and forth. But uh, I think we might be living at like the tail end of this most recent iteration of, of acute reaction. Mm. Um, but yeah, who, who knows? My feeling next? is that. The reaction is about the same as it's been since 2016 when everybody was talking about SJWs. Like, I think it's just sort of the same amount of people using slightly different terminology, you know, just sort of shifting the scapegoat, like, slightly. But I think the left is in, it just has inertia. And, like, people still have ideas and try to do things, but it's just... Uh, you know, in my experience and experience with a lot of people around me, it's hard to get people to commit at this moment when... It does, it's not like the stakes are low, but just day-to-day -day people aren't thinking about politics and wanting to take action. 
the way they were during the Trump administration. I I, I would actually, 100%. I would agree with you guys, but I would expand the definition of reaction or at least like the agents of reaction. I think um, it is true. We've seen like a different type of reaction, a stronger sort of reaction, more powerful one coming from the right. But I think especially in the last couple of years or so, much of the reaction that I think has brought the wind out of a lot of people's sails has been from the liberal side of things. I mean, the consolidation of power around Biden and the Democratic Party, the expulsion of essentially whatever progressive forces remained in that rump, disgusting organization known as the Democratic Party, not just in the United States, of course, but look at the, you know, what's happened um, to Corbynism over in Britain. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the ways in which um, power has been consolidated across Europe. Um, And I think that, you know, we're facing, I think, obviously like a duopoly and like a left wing and a right wing of liberalism. Um, But those things I think have really consolidated, especially after the George Floyd uprising, which was an opportunity to kind of wipe, wipe the slate clean and sort of shift, I think for both parties. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, The the international, you know, scene is, is definitely a complicated one. And we've seen, you know, shifts certainly over the last five, seven years, uh, you know, huge shifts rightwards in, in major countries. But at the same time, and especially as of late, um, Latin America in particular, if not a pink tide, it seems, you know, whether it's center left governments or, you know, more further to the left governments, there seems to be a nice little rebound effect of the left in Latin America in particular that I find um, I'm kind of exciting. So even in the midst of, of various forms of reaction, whether it comes from the Democratic party or the actual purveyors of full-on violent reaction on the on the political right mm-hmm. or you know the international scene um, there's there's ebbs and flows there's always you know always things to to kind of be hopeful about and optimistic about and always things to be combating and you know putting us on our back foot at times etc so it's certainly a mixed bag I would say but in the sense that the, the it's an era of reaction domestically you know, and it can be as simple because so many Americans filter their understanding of politics through the electoral system is when you have a Trump in the office and the national media focused on him, you know, people are more likely to get engaged on the left, even liberals moving leftward, becoming interested in socialism and communism and anarchism. And then just, you know, under Biden, it feels like the, you know, the the, the Trump people or the right more broadly have, um, you know, been able to kind of get a little steam of head with regards to, you know, we're out of power now, Biden is in power, mm-hmm. or, you know, fuck, fuck Brandon and all this stuff. Um, and but and I mean, of course, this this new sort of uh, revanchist anti LGBTQ hysteria, it's always been with us. Yeah. Um, but it's really kind of peaked as of late. And of course, it's we're speaking on a day where it culminated in this horrific uh, mass shooting in, in Colorado Springs, which is a direct result of this um, heightened moral panic and witch hunt around LGBTQ people on the on the right, but across the political spectrum, um, it, it's manifesting. And so we're kind of seeing that come to a head and, and lead to its logical conclusion at the moment yeah. as well. And so I just wanted to definitely carve out a little second to, you know, say my heart is in shambles for what you know, the people in Colorado Springs are going through. And this is where this sort of reaction ultimately leads. And, um, you know, when you see people on the ostensible left flirting with this anti-LGBTQ mm. stuff and, and marching in lockstep with reaction and, you know, bolstering turf rhetoric. This is what happens. And, and that's why I think it's a, it's, it's doubly on us as, as any sort of revolutionaries uh, to push back on it in this time of, of extreme um, reaction and violence. Yeah. Anyone who posts a picture of a drag queen or a picture from a pride parade as a 
trying to make a political point mm-hmm. about like the degeneracy of the left or anything like that, like just write them off. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of Absolutely. thinking. I mean, you, you have to like go a long way to change your political attitude if that appeals to you at any point. Well, there's like, but because of the failure, because, you know, this isn't just what we're living through right now isn't just the fruits of reaction uh, from the Democrats and from the Republicans and across the globe. It's also, it, it points to, to various failures in the sort of tactics and strategies that were employed or arose uh, since, you know, 2015 or so. Or you could argue even soon, like going back to Occupy Wall Street, Street of a certain kind of sort of progressive socialist politics tailing the Democrats um, and trying to integrate into that structure and ultimately failing miserably. Mm. Um, so in light of that failure, in light of the inertia that we're talking about, various people who have sympathies towards abstract ideals of socialism or communism or Probably not anarchism, uh, socialism or communism, and who see the working class as an agent and a subject of history, um, in the light of all those failures, try to resurrect, try to go back into history and find moments of where there were relative strengths and ape those things uh, and tell those things, uh, no matter how reactionary they are. So this return to the to discussions of like degeneracy and like bourgeois culture and whatever is a throwback to like you know what the 1950s and the 60s of like a sort of stalinist type reaction uh to social liberties uh where lgbtq Mm -hmm. rights were considered of course bourgeois at that point and had nothing to do with liberation whatsoever it's not surprising that people who are disappointed try to reach back and tail these sort of conservatisms of the past but it's certainly something that needs to be fought against because as you guys said we see the fruits of this everywhere. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Yeah. I mean, even Bob Avakian came around in the 1990s. All right. <laughs> <laughs> even Bob Avakian did a mea culpa, you know, the Black Panthers weren't great that on that stuff. Either. Oh, you haven't heard Bob Avakian. See, this is why we get together every once in a while. So we can, so we can hash these things out. Well, you know, you mentioned, um, we we're talking about like the inertia of the left and you, you sort of used, South America as a counterpoint where you've seen pretty far left candidates elected in, in Chile and in, uh, in Colombia. But, I, you know, it's an interesting, like, uh, kind of uh, counterfactual if you think about, like, what if the Democratic Party had maybe not Sanders elected, but, like, allowed the left, like, more access into the party? Like, what if we were seeing someone from the squad or someone squad friendly replacing Nancy Pelosi right now? Would we see less inertia on the left in general? Like, would this idea that the the left of the Democratic Party is the left wing of the possible, and then more ultra left people thinking, well, if that's possible, maybe our things are possible? Would there be more energy around that? And I think uh, what's happened in South America, uh, you you sort of see that reality where there's there were these big uprisings. There was this huge political moment in Colombia and in Chile. Uh, I think the result of the those uprisings hitting their limit. And and simmering on their own inertia, you see the like left wing parties in power and you see what I think is going to ultimately be their failure to do what they're claiming to do, whether it be the the referendum in, in Chile or what Petro is going to try to do in a sort of eco-socialist direction. I don't think these things are actually going to work. And I think it's because the result of them in power is the uprising. And without the uprising, nothing else is possible. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I, I can see that, and it's certainly different from the from the pink tide um, of of yesteryear in in various ways. I mean, there's also uh, in in all of this seemingly leftward movements, there's also plenty of 
anti-left sentiments and reaction to it. I mean, I think it was in Chile where there was this proposal of basically one of the most, if not the most progressive constitutions um, in the world that got, uh, I think, defeated in referendum. Uh, so, you, so you definitely have that. You have Lula, who in Brazil has, of course, um, because of the situation in Brazil and the need uh, defeat Bolsonaro has sort of and, and to build the proper coalitions to be able to do so has tacked a little bit towards the center and has brought in people into the government that makes that less of a perhaps a revolutionary or or you know even socialist um, movement as as far as the people you bring into the cabinet uh, and and going forward and what that's going to be in comparison to earlier iterations of this. Um, it's just kind of hard to say because we're living in the fog of the moment as well. Like yeah. what this, what these seemingly left-wing movements will ultimately turn out to be. There is some hope. I mean, with the rise of, of discussions of multipolarity, you have Lula back in with BRICS. Um, you have this more um, pan-Latin American sense that you know. I think a, a recent meeting was was being called for Latin American countries, and there was an attempt to keep out. I think Venezuela and Cuba. And many even, you know, people to the right of, of, you know, Venezuelan or Cuban leaders said, we're not going to do this because if we're going to do it, we're going to do it all together. So there's little elements of, of hope, particularly when it comes to um, coalitions against imperialism that, that could be interesting. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's going to be as as a robust of a movement as, as it might have been in the past. And, and a lot of these things have are yet to be determined as far as where the cards will ultimately fall. Yeah, there's an interesting dynamic at work, and not just in Latin America, but I feel like across the world, and Andy and I have been noting this on our show, and I'm sure you have on, on Rev Left as well, which is um, a sort of accumulation or like a rolling tide of uh, various different insurrectionary moments that have popped up, especially since 2008, and all the economic and geopolitical chaos uh, that that caused. And the question, I think now, especially in light of Chile, is how does... There's a question for all of us, maybe not one that I have an answer for, but like, how do we understand the sort of interplay and the inter uh, relationship between these insurrectionary moments and something that looks like um, a class platform or something that looks like mm. uh, a class movement uh, with institutional and staying power that can actually fight up in the in the realm of, you know, like actually fighting the ruling class and Chile, I think, um, you know, you mentioned that it was a very progressive constitution. I think one of the things that damned it is that it was progressive in a very specific type of way in like a mm. big P progressive sort of late 20, late 19th, early 20th century sort of way, or in a very, dare we say uh, neoliberal way in which what it, it, it didn't set out to be this. And it seems like the Chilean, uh, the forces of, uh, in Chile that tried to make this constitution, uh, were doing their best to try to bring in a coalition and try to, um, you know, put forward, uh, policies and constitutional changes that matched with various different interest groups. The reason why it was rejected, or at least the reason that we heard that it was rejected here in the West is because what it appeared to be when given to the people for referendum was a grab bag, of various different policies in favor of different interest groups, some stuff for the environment, some stuff for indigenous people, all relatively good on their own. But the question, of course, is how does that, or, or I guess maybe the failure of it is that it didn't represent a sort of unitary class program that could sort of 
uh, transcend the coalitional mm. politics that existed at that time, perhaps because it this insurrection ended up in a parliamentary situation as opposed to a revolutionary situation. So if we take if I don't, I don't know if you guys agree with that, if we do agree with that, then the question is, how do you turn an insurrectionary situation into a revolutionary one where you're not stuck in coalitional politics with various different class interests, various different fractions of classes, as opposed to like having a unified class program. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, a similar thing happened here in the U.S. in the 2020 um, protest movement, which was at certain times incredibly radical, um, you know, burning down police headquarters, fighting fascists in the streets. And now that entire movement has been all but completely co-opted uh, by the Democratic Party. Um, part of the and I don't I certainly don't have the answers as to the solutions here, but uh, part of it is uh, absolutely this um, this co-optive mechanism. I'm just talking about here in the United States in particular. That's what I know most about of, of the Democratic Party and its capacity to funnel these um, movements back into the maintenance of its power. Yeah. Because, in part, there is not the organizational capacity on the left, um, you know, class politic left in any meaningful way to funnel that energy anywhere else. And so it either has to dissolve, be, be destroyed by reaction, or be fully co-opted by the mechanisms of liberalism and the maintenance of the, the status quo and the hierarchies that, you know, the people in the Democratic Party and Republican Party leadership benefit from. Yep. Um, and so I think a core a core solution here is always going to be the utter necessity for higher and higher levels of organization. And um, I don't know if the if the left is up for it currently. There was a moment in those in those heady days where you know it felt like there was more and more coherency and organizational attempts. There were these attempts to bring different groups together, form sort of you know regional or national little organizations that could operate together. And with the um, with the more or less co-option of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, with the defeat of Trump, a lot of those energies have dissipated and just have handed over the movement to co-option and dissolution. And so the, the, for me, the solution always comes back to the utter necessity for increasing levels of organization on the left. And um, there's a million reasons why that doesn't happen. Uh, some part of it, at least, is this uh, cathartic release that people get from being online mm. where you can feel as if almost that you're in the trenches of politics. You know, you're firing off hot takes. You're, you're listening to a lot of other people that have your relatively radical position of a communist, anarchist, socialist. Um, people spend entire fucking days on there, you know, getting information across. I got 10,000 likes on this post. And it just seems like all of that energy it's not necessarily in direct contradiction with being able to organize as well, but it seems over and over again to take the place of that. And it's a lot of individuals posting a lot of hot takes and, and spending a lot of time on these social media platforms and not a lot of, of, of people willing to, to meet up in real life and try to solve, at the very least, problems on the ground in your community and then build from there. You know, And of course, the pandemic played a huge role in that. Yep. A lot of the, even here in Omaha, a lot of the organizations that were cropping up, you know, from 2016, and 15 up through 2020, I mean, the, the pandemic just destroyed them. People were staying home, people were not going out, and it was so hard to regain and rekindle that energy a year or two when, when things, you know, started opening up proper and people felt much safer to go back out. And so I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, you, 
Real quick, you mentioned, you know, the the sort of sirens call of online and how much people think that that replaces uh, organization. I think this is why we must all agree that Elon Musk is a world historical figure. I mean, who else could take forty four billion dollars of his own money, throw it in a bonfire and free us all from the cage of social media? Man, he's he's, he's incredible. Yeah. If Ghislaine Maxwell told him to buy and delete Twitter. And if, if that's what he's trying to do, I think we got to respect him. Respect. Man. Um, it's not it's it's a it's a reformist reform. I mean, Andy calls for the abolition of the Internet entirely, which, I, you know, I'm part of that maximalist. I'm just an abolitionist plank. like Elon Musk. But so my <laughs> uh, I, I want to weigh in on this question. And we're basically talking to me. It, it sounds like uh, like organization versus spontaneity. And I think, you know, historically, the more Leninist arguments for organization um, made a lot of sense, like within the context of the workers' movement and, and these massed socialist and communist parties. Uh, but today we we're just like looking at a labor movement that looks a lot different. We're looking at the way the proletariat takes action is much different. Um, so, like you know, the idea of organizing a general strike uh, today, you know, it's still a, it's a nice idea, but like it doesn't happen in the United States. And where it does happen elsewhere in the world, it's not a revolutionary act. It's just sort of part, part, part of the normal Protest metabolism yeah. between uh, between labor and capital. It's like, we're going to have a general strike. They've budgeted for it, et cetera. Yeah, a couple days. But now. what we do see now are these like more molecular uprisings that just aren't organized. It's proletarian people who normally don't care about the left or politics in general go to the street and fucking fight for a long time. And the idea that what they're fighting for is a new constitution mm. um, where everyone has a seat at the table or, or what they're fighting for is, um, you know, police reform or defunding the police is just not true. They're, they're fighting for something much deeper than policy or politics. Mm. But politics is like this vacuum that just keeps sucking these moments of proletarian self-activity into it yeah. um, to domesticate it within either, you know, the Democratic Party or this more activist, left liberal social movement apparatus, or even like the hard Marxist communist left, like we're trying to set up these groups to try to, to make militants. Um, but, you know, I, and I think that could be good as long as it's trying to orient itself towards what the proletariat is actually doing, mm. which is having these riotous, spontaneous uprisings that have the same effect as a general strike would have 100 years ago. Um, you know, this shock that scares the capitalist class and forces it into action. Uh, if, if we're organizing to support that, to push it forward, yeah, that's great. But if the idea is still like we need to domesticate that, we need to get them all to follow the leadership of leftists who have the right ideas, then it's just a waste of time. I mean, I... That the you know now we're getting into maybe some some more some deeper political disagreements that we all might have. I've been thinking a lot about this in light of what I think Brett very eloquently described as this sort of co-optation uh, and destruction of the insurrectionary moment we saw here in the United States a couple of years ago. We can throw Chile into the mix too. I think as Andy rightfully describes it. I think that there is a level in which, yes, it's true, things get sucked up into a particular type of political dimension, uh, therefore neutered, therefore turned into um, coalitional politics or just interest groups or whatever. But I think that we've maybe done ourselves a disfavor for the last, I I think, a lot of years, maybe at least 12, maybe 30, 40 years, uh, by not taking seriously um, a different a different type of politics, maybe a smaller p sort of politics, and by that I mean 
the the forces of reaction, the forces of the right, have been able to employ various cultural uh, and aesthetic arguments uh, in order to a claim that the say the Republican Party is a working class party uh, de facto, or that they can mm-hmm. represent working class interests. By that they mean a very specific stratum and and racial composition of the working class. But nevertheless, a lot of people in this country, and if you look at what the composition of what the left that we've been talking about has been. Uh, for many, many years now, maybe going back to the, the 1950s or something like that. Um, it is, by and large, a particular stratum, uh, a de- declining stratum of, let's call it like a white-collar sort of uh, working-class slash middle-class mix. Um, and there's a real fight to be had and a real struggle to be had for the rights of workers, of proletarians um, who aren't doing like, say, manual labor, blue-collar labor, like, say, the union work that I do, right? At the same time, what we've, what we've seen, what's been set up, is a sort of left, uh, even a radical left, that has um, a sort of blinders on when it comes to the differences between different fractions and stratum, strata of the class. Um, the uh, like, like radical militant blue-collar um, socialism or communism doesn't yet exist in this country. It doesn't really exist mm-hmm. across much of the world right now. If we imagine what politics could look like, it would be imagining a way in which we as a class could try to unite these different strata that I'm talking about here. Uh, just call it as a shorthand white or blue-collar. But ultimately, if you only have a particular type of demographic that's out of coming out of colleges with a particular habitus and life way, particular way of thinking about the world and what politics is trying to bring along, you know, a blue collar stratum, uh, as like, as a pole of attraction, uh, what you end up doing is missing a large part of working class experience. And I think the real potentialities of a working class politics of a class movement that could enter more successfully into production in order to, to be a powerful force. So maybe the politics, you know, maybe politics still intercedes, but it's a politics about trying to unite different fractions of our class together um, in a practical sense uh, in order to be more mm. powerful against our enemies uh, who exist in the corridors of power, whether those are liberals or, or right wingers. Right. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And then, of course, the question asks itself, which is which is how do we do that? Um, you know, the, I understand also Andy's critique of, of certain, you know, orthodox forms of of uh, high levels of organization, but I just mean like we don't even have, in a lot of instances, basic levels of, of community organization. Um, and so, you know, there's this idea of like, well, then there's some critiques of, of this mode of doing it, but then the alternative in, in the case of organization for spontaneity seems to be, you know, just the, the, the tailing of spontaneous eruptions that so easily get co-opted and dissolved. And then, you know, Sean, you're talking about uh, blue collar socialist movement and, and bringing in and the political task being trying to connect these different sort of strata into um, a coherent movement. And and I do genuinely am kind of stumped as as to how to do that. Um, there, there seems to be this. Yeah, like you were mentioning this play on the right to in rhetoric only, mind you, and we should we should always emphasize that claim to begin being the, the party of the working class. But of course, if they try to take that out of any, if they try to take that from rhetoric to actual policy, they're going to hit the same buzzsaw that any any attempt to do right. that in the Democratic Party hits, which is the donor class and the capitalist class yeah. saying absolutely fucking not. Um, they're equally, if not more so, um, you know, beholden to capital. Um, and, and so th- they can go ahead and, and talk like that. And there are certainly 
poor and working white people in Rust Belt sort of situations that saw Trump as a sort of, you know, wrecking ball to the to the establishment and went with him. But if you actually look at what Trump's policies, domestic economic policies were, they maybe with a few exceptions here and there around the edges, basically just did the same old Republican thing, mm -hmm. taxing, you know, cut, cut tax for the rich, allow fossil fuel companies to extract on public lands, mm -hmm. um, you know, cut social safety nets and, and programs. And so it actually functionally went the same way with little repercussion. Like it was not like after four years of Trump um, not doing much for the working class that, you know, those people turned on him. It's in some sense and in some elements of that of that uh, constituency doubled down mm -hmm. um, on, on their support for Trump. And there's also this question of, of mass media and these huge corporate media outlets that get to shape these narratives. We saw how MSNBC and CNN would put a foot in with, during 2020 of flirting with like, you know, like we support this stuff. They, they have a right to to rise up um, and then kind of, you know, over time, step back from that, soften it, bring um, everything down a little bit and then fully co-opt it. And uh, on the on the Republican side, again, we're, we're seeing this rhetoric um, that is is convincing, I guess, some people um, on the on the left that this might really be the locus of a new working class movement. Mm -hmm. But I think that is incredibly, incredibly naive. Um, and it, it is sort of this taking at face value, the rhetoric of the right, mixing it with this idea that, well, they did the January 6th riot. That's kind of aesthetically cool. It's almost like this rad lib infatuation with aesthetics, mm -hmm. you know, the rioting and then plus the face value rhetoric. And maybe this is the new locus for a working class party. But I just think like even behind the Democrats, right? The Democrats have, you know, in the last couple of years had to at least fend off a of Bernie Sanders who was not just about rhetoric, but was really down to, to do the policy thing. And the Republicans are still at that rhetoric point. Um, but at the same time, you know, you go down to these to, to blue collar areas or Rust Belt areas, and it is Trump country in a lot of ways. And that's something that the left has to grapple with. And that brings me back to the question of how can we reach out to these people? Um, you know, certainly I live in, in Nebraska. I have uh, these sorts of people in my life and I can maybe make an interpersonal intervention here and there. Um, but how do we en masse try to unite um, them with 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 our broader movement? It is a, it's, it's very difficult, you know, and I would love to hear your thoughts if you have any ways forward on that front. How do you think it would work if we said, OK, you're right. J6 was aesthetically cool, <laughs> but. Uh, May 28th in Minneapolis was exponentially cooler. Mm. 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 So the storming of the Versailles versus the storming of the Bastille. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say. Like, I, I think, I, I think it is a really interesting question and there's such a, a huge and frustrating uh, disconnect between, I think what is necessary to happen and, and what exists right now. Cause it's not simply, I think that, um, Let's say the 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 Trump voting guy that I work with um, is it has false consciousness, let's say, or is simply doing it because they've been tricked into it by, you know, racist uh, ruling class lackeys, um, you know, without an actual class poll for politics to organize around without some, an alternative path that we argue is about ultimately working class supremacy uh, and the overcoming of the social relations that bind all of us and the freedom and liberation, free association of producers without that poll, you're left with like, 
this sort of um, back and forth, perennial back and forth between sort of woke managerial capitalism. I'm using that with scare quotes, by the way, but like a sort mm-hmm. of socially liberal managerial um, technocratic meritocratic capitalism on the one hand of like a post-industrial economy with office workers uh, where everyone's nice to each other and you don't have any sort of like bad words in the office on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, you know, you have offered to you the opportunity for, um, you know, workers to, to get more jobs because you're doing tax breaks for corporations. You're going to put the tariffs up on China. So maybe you're going to get, you know, a better warehousing job than you had before. Um, and you're not going to have to be nice to anybody. You can just say kind of fuck you and whatever. I think that, you know, if those are the two options, there's going to be plenty of people that, you know, pick the, the latter one. And I think that ultimately it's on us if we're not offering, say, a third, a third thing, a secret third thing that would be like a class <laughs> politics that that actually had some purchase there. And I, but I don't think that that's impossible. I think that there's a frustrating disconnect right now. But one of I think, and all of us, you know, are well within the Marxian tradition. You still consider yourself a Maoist, right? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I would say right. I'm, I'm a Marxist, maybe an anti-revisionist ML in some sense. I mean. Yeah, like on certain questions, I, I don't fall neatly into either the Leninist or the Maoist uh, camp, and that could be frustrating to people. <laughs> I really am and more and more getting away from like trying to hyper-locate myself inside of a specific sect and just say, I'm a Marxist, so of course I take Lenin and Mao seriously. Um, but uh, but, but that's yeah, gonna I, I wouldn't dis- necessarily say that I'm a Maoist. Brett, that's going to disappoint the same people that are disappointed by us. You have to lay claim and a stake <laughs> to a sectarian history, and you have to minutely go through in a historical and abstract sense all the different historical <laughs> events and theories from the 20th century in order to have like the perfect little ideological market niche that you can create for yourself so that only the right-thinking Maoists or Leninists or anarchists or situationists or whatever, you know, can can listen to you and appreciate you. And Brett, how are part you of feeling? Your how are you feeling about the proletariat's need to build bunkers recently? <laughs> Has that been on your mind? Pillbox question. Go ahead. <laughs> I have no fucking clue how to respond to that. <laughs> All right, so he's not yet a hojaist. I got you. So not a hojaist. We're we're gonna narrow this down. <laughs> I mean, like, so so what I was gonna say is that so all of us are from you know at least like a Marxian tradition, uh, or at least we, we, we take the, the social and political tr- critique of Marxism as sort of a base to understand where the world is going and where we want it to go. And then what follows from that, I think, is different for all of us as many, many other people. But like, I mean, one of the, the basic sort of principles of that worldview is that uh, capital and this moving sort of social relationship that it creates ultimately creates the conditions for its own overcoming. So if you see the way in which the capitalist economy, uh, global economy has developed in the last 30 or 40 years, everything is pointing towards, has been anyways, pointing towards the sort of internationalization of supply chains, which is to say the socialization of a global proletariat, perhaps in a way that we Mm -hmm. haven't seen, uh, except maybe in smaller portions of the world in the 19th, early 20th century, uh, which is to say that what is necessary has to maybe not as a in, uh, an immediate step, but as an intermediate step, pass beyond borders uh, in a way sufficient or adequate to what uh, you know capitalism provides us with, as working material. Um, and you know, I think on top of that too, 
it seems, and Andy was pointing to this, it seems as though the era of mass politics um, in capitalist society, with some exceptions, has kind of faded. Whether a mass politics that looks like something of the, say, first half of the 20th century is ripe for a return is a question. Likewise, whether the sort of recent moves we've seen towards a multipolar world, you could call it, or at least the creation of various different sort of like more mercantilist blocks of, you know, capitalist uh, nation states, whether that might change uh, the situation where organizing on a national basis starts to make more sense is an open question. But I think like we always need to look at the kind of historical and specific developments of the capitalism that we live in, in order to try to think about organizing against that. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, to, to your point about, you know, international supply chains and globalism and all of this is that there's, there's a sense that I'm getting, and I w- I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this as well, that this period um, that we've called neoliberalism roughly from the late 70s up till today and the globalism, that it, the form of globalism that, that took place under this paradigm is kind of coming to an end in one way or another. There's this idea yeah. of the pandemic in particular showing, just as one example, the complete fragility of just-on-time international supply chains. And there seems to be at least a sort of rough prelude to a move to regionalize or reshore manufacturing or regionalize supply chains. And that this that um, with the rise of multipolarity as well is also coming more or less the end of the neoliberal era um, of our of, of international politics in particular. And that leaves, of course, with the end of any era is going to leave open massive um, opportunities yeah. and, you know, things are going to get a little wild and, you know, things are going to get shaky as well. And, and I think we're already seeing that. But a lot of a lot of like, you know, this is getting to the world of geopolitical strategists and analysts right there. They are all sort of more and more coming around to sing in unison this chorus that neoliberal globalization and the system in place put in place by the Bretton Woods system is more or less coming to an end with uh, American, uh, you know, energy independence becoming mm-hmm. more and more robust. There's less and less of a need for them to be uh, micromanaging the politics of, let's say, the Middle East. Right. Um, and there's and there's going to be less and less of a need for the United States to, as it has done for the last uh, for last several decades, make the global supply chain and global trading, you know, backing it up with the with the full force of the global empire of the of the United States and basically so, yeah. making safe for, you know, the um, for the trading, uh, global trading, making it more or less safe, being the police of the international waters when it comes to global trading. Um, and, and these things are sort of coming to an end. I think domestically, the neoliberal era is be, being questioned, genuinely questioned whether or not it actually results in any shift in policy, but genuinely questioned in both the Republican and the Democratic um, Party base. And so I, insofar as our strategy needs to um, wrestle with the actual historical moment we're in. I wonder if we can, if we all agree, or if there's some disagreement, that this period of time that we've called the neoliberal period, both globally and domestically, is more or less coming to an end. It won't mean a full retraction of everything that you know neoliberalism and the and that period have done internationally or domestically. Yeah, it'll be but a it super session. Reining back in. Right. What are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah. And, yeah, uh, I mean, it's that's a really that's really well put. My skepticism towards that is the idea that there will be or can be multipolarity because I don't think that it's all these 
sort of geographical or historical or political blocks, I think the most important thing holding everything together is like the consumption of Americans and Europeans mm. mostly. And mm. so much of what exists economically in the world is maintaining that. So even if the police, mm-hmm. even if the United States just shut down their military bases and stop being the police of the world, American consumers are still going to be eating in, uh, and consuming at this massive rate. And the waste of that process is what maintains a lot of the world's non uh, first world population. That's true. Um, so there's just like this economic reality that needs to change. And that's at the basis of it. And I think that's something that's more likely to change before uh, a serious shift in international alliances. And I think we're sort of seeing that in this last year with this war on Russia uh, or uh, sorry. Uh, so uh, uh, this, this Andy war takes the gray zone position. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> you know, when Michael Biden Hudson. started the war on Russia <laughs> and Russia defended itself, we saw the, the uh, how difficult it is to actually split into these different blocks. We're like, oh, yeah. you know, Russia is able to make some separate trade deals on gas and stuff. But like when it comes down to it, everyone's economic interests are exactly the same. There's just like this need for certain minerals in certain places that are getting bottlenecked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there there is something certainly like um, massive happening right now, and I and I'm glad that you brought it down to earth with the uh, uh, the Russian Ukrainian war. I think the question of can anywhere replace the United States as the consumer of last resort of like the world surplus commodities is a very interesting question. The question about whether the sort of rising middle strata of China, given like the fruits of their developmental process over the last forty fifty years or so makes it's plausible to imagine that China could become the consumptive center and the surplus capital center of another sort of uh, mercantile block market block anyways so there you would have a i guess a two polar a bipolar world right but the actual flesh and bones of what we've been seeing over the last what's it been 9 months of war over there i think something like that uh 8 or 9 Perfect. months is is really interesting and and i think shows how I agree we're moving out of neoliberalism and I think we're moving in a in a in a scary and chaotic direction. I think the question is whether another global hegemon can even arise uh within the capitalism that we have right now in a similar way to the United States. Uh if China could fulfill that role, the the Chinese Communist Party doesn't seem to want to fulfill that role. They don't have grand designs except perhaps to um create a, a um a separate but equal developmental global regime called the Belt and Road Initiative that's actually been development developing Africa in a way that uh, Western capital really hasn't and kind of creating its own block. Mm-hmm. So I there's there's a bunch of questions. One of them is whether this is simply as say Giovanni Arrighi would point to like an age of global terminant uh, turbulence in between the rise of various different uh, global hegemons. Um, both mm. economic and political ones, which is to say, is this the decline of the United States and the rise of China taking the role that, say, the United States or Britain or, you know, uh, the Netherlands took before? Um, open question there, and one I, I think I'm pretty agnostic on. Uh, but the, what's actually we're seeing on the ground right now, especially in the very interesting relationship between the European Union and the United States um, and their ruling classes, is a real serious... Um, I don't know, like geopolitical slash economic shift where the geopolitics of the Russo-Ukrainian war 
have really overtaken the economics of it because it appears that Europe is in a in a moment of deindustrialization due to the increase in their or decrease in their gas supplies and the fivefold ri- uh, rise in uh, the cost of oil and natural gas, which is really putting a hampering on their production. In a way, like the ruling class of Europe is siding even closer with the United States as this proxy war, we can call it, actually. Um, severely damages not just their economy, but the unity of the European Union. Um, So will the European Union remain a sort of uh, junior partner to the United States in terms of like the West and that particular bloc? Or is it possible, as I tend to believe, that a lot of the terms and a lot of the ways that we've we think about the world um, geopolitically, economically, even in terms of class formation and class struggle, are due to change rather dramatically, I think, in the in the coming years, which is to say that all of us will be living and fighting on a terrain that looks so radically different that we can only really guess what it looks like. For example, war filled break, with bunkers, filled with bunkers, filled with pillboxes. <laughs> like so, what? Is, so the fruits of of war through um through capitalist history. I wouldn't say world history, but capitalist history. There have have frequently, almost always, been revolutionary movements that pop off after big major wars. So what does the mm. world? What does Europe, Eastern Europe, look like after it's been filled with weapons? After there's been all that loss of life and destruction. Um, how does that affect the politics uh, of the rest of Europe? Uh, what happens if there's a split between the EU and the United States? What does China's rise actually look like? Where does Russia fit into this? Where does Africa, this humongous continent with billions of people, fit into this? How does India fit into it? It's an open question. But I think that we should all be prepared, whether we're red, rev left listeners or anti fada listeners or both, or just, you know, if you just stumbled upon this podcast, to start operating in very, very different conditions. Like if America does lose its global hegemony or if that does decline in a real serious way and our purchasing power declines it completely overturns the last 50 years of like cheap consumer goods cheap consumables for the american working and middle class and we're in a sort of austerity situation we've never seen what does class struggle look like in those terms we really probably haven't seen it in this country not since the 19th century yeah no it's it's all a lot of really good food for thought and uh and, it's, and so much is going to depend, well, so much on that specific front is going to depend exactly how this Russia-Ukraine war ends. I mean, I think also the the ideological inertia in the United States, come what may, you know, come like an economic sort of disaster, whatever possible outcomes could could come out of this, the the American people and the American mass media is so, and this comes from being, you know, founded as a white supremacy, settler colonial state, and the ideology that comes along with that, is like it's so geared towards tipping into fascism as opposed to, uh, you know, socialism or communism in the face of a of a real crisis. And I think that is what it will take to make real movement on the domestic front, because mm-hmm. ultimately, I think a lot of Americans, um, as as shitty as as being a working class American is. A lot of Americans, for a million different reasons that we all know, um, are are very ultimately comfortable, mm. and 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 this this even tempers down, I think, the the far right reaction, which can be scary, which can take the form of terrorism. But you know, a guy that lives in the suburbs and has a seventy thousand dollar truck, you know, and and has a pension from you know his job or whatever, is not really going to risk it all shooting it out in the streets of fucking New York City and right. or die bleeding in an L.A. street fight, um, the right versus the left, right? And so I think 
I think in order for real movement one way or the other to occur, it's going to have to come in the form of a genuine and undeniable economic um, crisis that makes the average American much less comfortable. Um, and, but that's very scary because yeah. in that sense, given the ideological momentum and inertia and foundations of American society, I feel like it would be incredibly susceptible to um, to, to fascism, some form of fascism. Um, and so and so, you know, that, that's something that that I think about as well. And then the question of, of, of bipolarity versus multipolarity, I think, is one that we don't talk about a lot. I think that there is a, an outcome of this, you know, international foment and, and tumult that uh, that that could that could result in something like these two big bipolar blocks that we saw with, you know, the last Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, it could take that form again. And I think actually, if the U.S. has to give up complete unipolarity. It would much prefer bipolarity to multipolarity. Mm. Um, there's a sense in which breaking up the world into half, and, and you know, the, America has done that before. It can yeah. do that again. <laughs> we have muscle memory uh, you know? there. <laughs> That's yeah. a good point. Um, multipolarity would be would be a much different thing. And so we, we should think we should think pretty critically, all of us. And I don't have the answers here, but the differences between a bipolar and a multipolar world, and what those implications are, and if the U.S. has to choose between the two what it would prefer. It would prefer perhaps, you know, just make China the the, the Soviet Union and, and do these two huge blocks. I don't think China wants that. Um, and I think other countries do not want to live in this position where they have to pick sides. I mean, you know, back in the day, there was the non-alignment movement and we could see something like that as well. Mm-hmm. You can judge how successful or unsuccessful that was. Obviously not very. I mean, um, Indonesia is Indonesia's, uh, proposing an OPEC for uh, lithium, lithium producers, for like mm-hmm. rare earth mm-hmm. mineral producers to try to play off China against the United States. So I don't think a non-aligned mm-hmm. movement is out of the realm of possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so a lot of that will dictate um, what forms domestically are, are taken here. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's these are very, very complicated questions. Uh, the the Russia Ukraine war in particular is going to be very interesting to see how it plays out this winter. Um, how much Europeans will put up with these exorbitant energy costs, um, the the impact to their overall economies um, that that you know they're they're taking straight in the face from this from this conflict. And that's something I do like to emphasize, regardless of what people's different opinions are on, on this war. My position is that. We should be pushing for peace. These wars, and of course, this is a basic Marxist position, hurts the working people, not only of Ukraine and not only of Russia, who, of course, take the brunt of it, but the working people of Europe and to some extent the working people of America are mm-hmm. impacted um, by these wars. And so for me, the 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 solution that we should be pushing is focused on peace and is focused on compromise and getting everybody to the negotiation table and ending um, the bloodshed. But I don't think America in particular is, is, is overly interested in doing that. America seems, at least right now, to be willing to fight to the last Ukrainian <laughs> right. and, um, and, and, and destabilize Russia. You see all these pieces coming out um, f- uh, from these liberal outlets, whether it's on YouTube or in article form, of the imminent collapse of Russia. You know, Russia will, it will no longer be a, a coherent nation state whether that's the goal or they believe that's the prediction that Russia is going to splinter into, you know, a bunch of different balkanized factions or territories or warlordism or whatever it is. Um, I, I think there is a there is an element within the military industrial ruling class that that wants to take the war to that point. 
um, to the point where they can completely destabilize and destroy Russia and what the consequences for Europe um, of that will be are, are you're, you know, really unknown, but they're not going to be good. And so, yeah, there's, like, there's a lot on the table here. They're as like as, uh, uh, in, how things could play out. Incredible loss of life, decline in living standards, uh, increased mortality during the 1990s in Russia. Hold my beer. They're like, we're, <laughs> we're going to do <laughs> exactly. that times. Exactly. You know, we already did such a number. Well, this is all very interesting and good stuff, and it's clearly three years has been way too long for uh, all of us to have not been talking. This is the time in the episode when we're going to take it behind the paywall. So if you are a patron, one of our many, many great patrons, we'll see you on the other side. If you're not yet a patron of the Antifada, you can go on patreon.com slash the Antifada and get the rest of this conversation, because I think it's time possibly with Brett and Andy and myself to get a little spicy on the other side of that wall. So if that sounds good to you, go ahead, Brett, and plug, and then we'll jump over to the bonus. The Sriracha Zone. (laughs) (laughs) The Sriracha Zone. Yeah, uh, everything I do is at revolutionaryleftradio.com. You can find um, Red Menace, Guerrilla History, and Rev Left Radio there, as well as the Patreons associated with each of those and our social medias, etc. And I really appreciate you guys having me on. I look forward to getting spicy behind the table. Hell yeah, spice it up. Let's go.